You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show, where we will be beginning to reflect on the year that was 2022. And yes, folks, it has already come to the end of 2022. So, as may peace be upon you all, and uh, may Allah uh, bless all of our listeners, um, and for a wonderful year that has gone past, and for the up and coming next year as well. But look, it's already gone past, and um, we are going to reflect on this uh, drive time show today on February. Uh, yesterday we did January and then consecutively in the next drive time shows we'll be doing all of the months but uh, oh my god it's just such a packed out um, month I can't believe what we covered there was so much we did but we're only going to touch on some highlighted and the challenges that were faced but actually you know we're going to touch on the Kiras what they faced and at that time we recognised that the contribution that they made to families and communities throughout the UK uh, was kind of really undervalued and we know that 7 out of 10 of the UK also feel that the carers are you know, not sufficiently valued. We know that the care system has hit the brink, it's on the failure there's like a race to the bottom it's completely disenfranchised uh, no one really knows what's going on but obviously things need to happen so we, we touched on that subject and we'll, we'll hear some um, interviews that took place uh, in February in this show I mean that's how it works, I'll do a little bit of introduction and then we'll play some clips uh, of uh, past interviews we did with our prestigious and um, academic guests that came and joined us. And also we spoke about knife crime. I mean, knife crime at that time was leading uh, the UK in all over, in the, you know, in the whole of the country, and it became very prevalent in February. And the violence caused by knife crime became not only just a threat to the individuals involved, but it became a threat to the peace in society. And the shocking statistics revealed that half of the black children in the UK are affected by poverty and are twice as likely to grow up in poverty than our white children. Uh, so that in itself was um, a very alarming. And then also it's still going on with the uh, crossing of the English Channel. We already had some disastrous stories only yesterday and day before that, that happened. We know that if you think about the displacement has risen, we are now at about 82.4 million people around the world that have been forced to flee from their homes. And last year there were 5,558 people who were recognised as refugees in the UK. And one in five was a child who was in the UK alone without uh, the legal right to be reunited with their parents. I mean, that's the question we're asking. Is that fair? So we'll delve into that a little bit more detail. But also, the month of February, it it served as a very important month for... Um, many of our listeners and many of the people who are involved with this registration and also our community, the Ahmadi Muslim community, as they all came together to remember the prophecy concerning the birth of the promised son. 
and its fulfilment. So this is what we're going to be sharing with you in the next hour. So, you know, how did the Drive Time show, you know, keep you guys interested? And as you are, you are now becoming very regular listeners and tuning in all the time. So we've picked some of our most highlighted moments of the day and uh, we will be covering that all for you so anyway so one of the first sort of topics that we spoke about was the displacement of families that were forced to flee uh, which is really important and that kind of really set the scene where every day all over the world people are making that most difficult decision to decide to leave their homes in search for not only a better life but for security and protection for their loved ones and also maybe reunite themselves as well with their family members and I said earlier there was about 82.4 million people around the world who have been forced to flee their homes and we'll talk about that as well and then the effect it had on children and the heavy price that you had to pay uh, for actually when you arrive in the UK I would say very much a limited freedom so that's the kind of topic that we want to do and then we'll probably uh, talk about the unfair rules and and what has the government response been I mean it, we know in March 2021 the government published its integrated review of security defence and development on foreign policy which it did at that time set out its high level vision for the UK role in the world which is really important and it said that it would remain sensitive to the plight of refugees and asylum seekers, stating that our resettlement schemes have provided a safe and legal route for tens of thousands of people to start new lives in the UK. And if you are one of those people and you wanted to call in and share your experiences, please, by all means, do that. We'll love to hear from you as well. And then we'll just um, touch on the Islamic perspective as well, because we understand that migration can take place for many reasons, economic, religious, and just simply for re- relocation. And as you know, that Islam's history has witnessed various waves of migration. And the Quran also speaks of the oppressed and the weak people on earth and suggests that they could migrate from their from their oppressed position to another land of God. And in verse Four, sorry, in chapter 4, verse 97, it, it does says that, Was not the earth of God spacious enough for you to flee for refuge? So that kind of gives you an understanding of what the Islamic perspective is. So based on that, what I wanted to do was um, just play two wonderful uh, clips and two interviews that we had uh, recorded in the month of February. And, it, and it's very clear that when you look at the evidence at hand, it, it is a very serious issue and it needs to be addressed with urgency although the governments have put plans in place but according to the Islamic teachings every part of the earth is God's land so you are more than welcome to um, travel there although there are borders that have been put up in place to divide nations and stop the flow of immigration and migration but uh, from one land to another but in the teachings of Islam all lands belong to God and all the people are servants of God so these are the things we wanted to do and I just end by saying that this point was further emphasised by saying that uh, saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and he said that God has made the entire face of the earth as a mosque for me and its soil as pure Um, and that was um, in Ibn Hub and uh, then you can get an electronic version of that. And as you know, that's one of our uh, online presence um, on www.alsunnah.com. 
Com. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the f- uh, next two clips for you and enjoy these moments and I'll be back with you. Start by asking you um, about the rules that are being introduced um, here in the UK that could prevent thousands of uh, refugees from joining their close family uh, family members here in the UK. Um, and if I can take a, maybe a step back, can you, um, can you introduce one of those laws and I guess uh, the all important uh, nationality and borders bill for our listeners what is that bill um, uh, what will it entail when it um, uh, when it is passed and where it uh, in the in the, in the um, sort of passing stage is it at the moment so at the moment um, what the laws are in relation to what's called family reunion that is um, the ability of a refugee in the UK to bring family members to the UK. Um, And at the moment, they are able to bring um, spouse and children, so people who are part of their family unit unit before they left their country of origin, before they had to flee from their country. So that is what it is at the moment. Um, The new Nationality and Borders Bill, which is um, in play at the moment, as it were, um, the government has said that there are three key objectives to this, and that is... Number one, to make the system fairer and more effective so that the UK authorities can better protect and support those in genuine need of asylum. Number two, to deter illegal entry into the UK, um, breaking the business model of criminal trafficking networks and saving lives. And to number three, to remove from the UK those with no right to be here. So it's very kind of noble, as it were, um, ideals as to what they're working for. Um, but the, the new bill that they are planning to bring in is going to have two systems uh, or two tier levels for those seeking asylum. So the first one will be those that come to the UK legally, um, either through um, uh, some kind of legal means or uh, claim asylum through some other country where they are allowed to be. Um, and then, um, and the second people is those who come to the UK illegally. So what the the new bill is planning to say is those people that come to the UK illegally will not have the right to have their family members join them in the UK. Um, And obviously this is going to affect lots and lots of people. At the moment, there is no system of applying for asylum unless you are in the UK. So unless that system is is changed, you know, maybe 99% of those seeking asylum um, have to enter through illegal means. There is no other way for them to do so. Um, So that's what's happening at the moment. Um, And what is a shame really is that the UNHCR um, are saying that the border and immigration, uh, this new act that that the UK want to bring in um, will possibly um, make, you know, not only will it um, make things impossible, but they're saying that we will be then going um, away from the 1951 convention dealing with human rights. So the, the broader spectrum of the law within which um, all signatories to the 1951 convention um, build their asylum law um, according to those those principles. Mm-hmm. And, and the government has provided an alternative called offshoring. So what does that entail and will it be beneficial? Well, they are. They have said this. I mean, we don't know how far it will actually happen. Um, but what they are saying um, is that they're trying to, to have a system whereby people can claim asylum either in a in a separate country or if they claim asylum in the UK, they'll be sent to this offshore post 
um, where the application will be will be dealt with there. Um, but it means that um, you know they may be kept indefinitely in remote areas, placing their own lives in considerable danger. I mean. Um, in the last few months, there was a lot of talk about this in the media. And in fact, the UK authorities said one of the countries they were um, planning to, to set up these systems in was Albania. But however, when the um, Albanian ambassador to the UK was asked about it, he um, plainly stated that there have been no plans, there's been no talks between the UK government and Albania. And if there had been, or if the UK authorities were to approach Albania to do so, Albania would refuse. Um, and so it doesn't look like the UK authorities have actually thought this plan through. I mean, it means that those people seeking asylum, if they're sent somewhere far away, how are they going to access legal representation in those places? Um, are, is the legal aid agency that pays a lot of legal fees, are they planning to allow the legal aid agency to send lawyers to those places in order for them to, um, to, to seek proper legal advice? I know at the moment obviously since covid we are able to do a lot more online than we ever had to do before but you know even doing these things online even now it's actually very difficult um to deal with clients or speak to them and advise them properly and take proper instructions from them when you're doing it in an online way so i don't believe that this system will be fair at all when we talk about offshoring um one country that comes to mind is australia um how have their experience been and are we are we have we learned anything from their experience uh, i mean i think um what i know about um, the australian policy is that they do keep people offshore um in you know in quite um uh you know not very nice conditions I mean, they've, they've been um, the media has been horrific about uh yes about exactly that. so if, if that's what's going on, I mean, I know I read somewhere in the media about people that are, that are there for years and years while their um, asylum process is being is being done. I mean, that can't be a way. I mean, if we're talking about trying to integrate people that are genuine refugees into the UK system or into whichever country that they are sent to. How are they meant to integrate when you stick them offshore um, for years and years without any kind of proper due process? That can't be a way of, of, of dealing with um, cases of asylum. Um. Right. So, if, if I if I can uh, uh, go back for a second to the uh, to the Nationality and Borders Bill, um, one of the uh, contentions or contentious um, articles of this bill is also that uh, the existing citizen an existing citizen can be stripped of their nationality. Is that correct? That's correct. So um, they can only do that. Obviously, we, we, we must have all seen in the media about Sh Shamima Begum, um, and that's what they're trying to do to her, um, according to the existing laws. Um, but what uh, one of the more controversial uh, policies in, in the new bill will be that somebody leaving the UK will not be given notice that they may be stripped of their nationality, which means they can't return. Um, so it, it, it does seem like a very kind of, you know, very extremely racist law, really, because... Um, if you were a white um, British person who mm. had no link at all to any other country, you could commit the same crime as somebody else that may have come from another country, but you will be much more hard. The person that once came from another country or who may have a citizenship in another country will be treated much, much more harshly um, because they possibly could be returned to another country or they may have another nationality to um, uh, that the UK can say, well, we can um, return that person or that person has links to that other country. Um, but it could be the same crime 
um, that somebody else has committed and, and they won't be able to be returned to another country. Um, and one of the one of the issues here that is that where this person committed the, the where the person grew up, where the person possibly committed the crime, where they were where they were taught. Um, and all these things come into play, um, and yet it seems as though the UK authorities are trying to um, get rid of their responsibility to these people. Right. So, uh, I guess the obvious question that arises um, here, Ms. Buddy, is that if Shamima Begum's nationality could be stri- stripped under existing laws by the Secretary of the State, why do we need another law? I think what the the UK authorities found is that actually it's not so easy to strip people of their nationality and um but but one of the issues is that um before the person leaves even if the uk authorities believe that they are going to strip them they don't then need to give them any notice to do so um and they can wait until they've left the country and then just not allow them back in so the home secretary says that the asylum system is overwhelmed to what extent is that true if we look at the figures I mean, according to the figures, actually, it, it, it's not um, as overwhelming as people, people believe it to be. So according to the UNHCR, there were 82.4 million people worldwide who were forcibly displaced at the end of 2020. And that's as a result of persecution, conflict, violence, human rights violations or, or, or other events seriously disturbing public order. Um, but if you look at the, the UK, um, at the end of 2018, there were... 126,720 refugees, 45,244 pending applications. Um, And that's about 0.26% of the UK's total population. So when the media and the Home Secretary are saying that the the country is overwhelmed by refugees, that is not the case at all. Um, Obviously, there are certain places in the UK where it seems as though there are more um, refugees or or, or migrants even um, than in other places, but actually, if you look at a whole through the system, it's not it's not overwhelmed. I mean, I think the the issue that is overwhelming is how long the Home Office takes to to make decisions on um, asylum seekers' cases, and that is what is making it overwhelming. Um, the that system is broken. Um, a COVID obviously has made it worse, but even before COVID, um, that you know we had clients waiting maybe a year and a half, two years to have a decision made on their case. Now, with COVID coming in, that has pushed everything back, so it could be up to three, even four years. So these people are sitting in limbo, um, and that is the system that's broken. Um, The other system that is broken also is that those people that are refused uh, asylum, um, there aren't proper provisions in order to to remove them from the UK. Um, And so... That is; those are the things that are overwhelming, and it's actually the system that they need to repair, uh, rather than saying that we we can't um, we can't uh, allocate space in the UK for people that are genuinely in need of protection. So, um, where are we in terms of um, uh, of the passage of this bill, and and has have uh, these questions that we are raising been asked uh, during the approval process? Um, I mean, I think that. I think they are being discussed, and how, um, how, how, and they will be discussed even further. Um, but at the moment, um, it is um, it's it's in the um, so it's had its first reading, the second reading, and third reading in the in the House of Commons, um, and it's now 
at the committee stage in the sorry, it's at the, the first stages of, of the House of Lords. So we'll so it have has to been look, passed by the House of Commons already. Um, uh, yes, it has been. It has been. Right. Um, and so it's in the stage of the House of Lords at the moment. So we'll have to see how the House of Lords. So the House of Lords will do their reading, have a committee, and if it's not passed, it will have to go back to the House of Commons to, to bring it back in again to see what what what's going on there. Um, so it does look like it will be passed, um, but it depends on, on, on what the House of Laws now say. Mm. Um, to what extent a naturalised person in this country should be afraid or should be concerned as a result or if this bill does get passed? I think a naturalised person should be concerned, and it's not only a naturalised person. It's, it's as we can see from the case of Shamima Begum, mm. um, you know, somebody that has any any links, um, historical links to another country. Um, we should be all concerned. Obviously, there's the argument that if you don't do anything wrong, um, you're not going to, to to have. You know, this is not going to be an issue that that concerns you. Um, but actually, we need to look um, kind of more as a community based. Um, issue is in the community, the whole UK community, rather than thinking just for ourselves, well, I'm not doing anything wrong, so it's not going to affect me, or I'm a um, white British person, so it's not going to affect me. But we have to look at the rule of law here, and we have to look to see, um, are, is our government, who is working in our name, um, acting in a fair and just way? And it seems as though from, from, this, um, from this bill that um, they are not acting in a just way. So it, it seems like a foregone conclusion that this will become a law pretty soon, given that House of Commons has already passed it and has gone already through a couple of readings in the House of Lords. Um, what do you think are the chances of um, this law, when this does become law, to be struck down by courts on, on the basis of, you know, this is against uh, basic human right, isn't it? Yes, exactly. I mean, um, what would happen um, as decisions um, which are made by the Home Office, by the Secretary of State, uh, can be challenged by way of what's called a judicial review. So if the, the decision is so um, irrational or so unfair, um, then I think actually what will happen with this law is that it's going to make a lot more work for lawyers that deal with this kind of application and deal with judicial reviews. Um, and if we are a part of the, uh, the Refugee Convention, and these policies that are, are being made or these laws that are being made are go against the Refugee Convention, then I think, um, you know, um, clients, people will have uh, the opportunity to be able to challenge those laws. Um, and it may find that the government may find that these laws are not compatible um, with the treaties that they have with other countries, in which case they're going to have to be struck down. It seems a very odd way of doing things to push through a law which um, is inherently um, against um, the, the Refugee Convention and then to have to then backtrack afterwards, although, you know, um, maybe they think that the lawyers won't be, won't be challenging them, but I don't think that is the case. Uh, and lastly, how can those suffering as a result of these you know, new rules uh, seek help and advice? Um, I mean, I think, you know, once it comes in and once we know the practical terms of how... Um, how the government is going to um, enact these laws and how they're going to um, um, how they're going to apply them in everyday life. It's at that point that um, it looks as though well, we don't know what the system is going to be, how there's going to be whether there's going to be a proper appeal system, or whether it will be a, a case of 
um, applying for what's called a judicial review, saying that the decision that the Secretary of State has made is so irrational or unfair um, that it would have to be challenged either in the High Court um, or the highest courts in the UK. Um, and, and that is the only way that there will be to challenge these decisions. Let me start by asking. Uh, so you may have heard we've, we've been talking uh, to an immigration lawyer about um, the Nationality and Borders Bill and about the issue of refugees in general. So hundreds of refugees attempt the dangerous trip across the English Channel every year, despite freezing temperatures and, and atrocious conditions. Um, what needs to happen to prevent this loss of life across the Channel? It's a very good question. And I, I think the starting point has to be to try and put yourself in the shoes of somebody who is making that decision to, to put their life at risk, getting into what often is barely worth even touring a boat. Quite often it's a, a raft or a dinghy, clearly not very, not very safe. But for somebody to make that decision, to put their life at risk in that way, to try and reach the UK, means that they have to be pretty desperate. So that's why we as the British Red Cross are calling for the UK government to work with other governments around the world, in particular the French government, to actually address some of those key reasons why people feel they have no other options but to do that. And so for some of the people, that's because they might have family members in the UK that they're trying to reach, but they have no safe way of doing that. Other people might have other links to the UK, such as language or uh, cultural links or, or friends who are here as well. But at the moment, if you want to apply for asylum in the UK, you have to physically be here in the UK. But there's very few legal pathways for people to do that. So that's why we're calling for more people to be able to join safely um, through family reunion, but also for an expansion of things such as the resettlement scheme that we saw for Syrian refugees, and now there's the Afghan scheme as well. But for those schemes to be expanded as we now go through these reforms of the asylum system. Mr. Feedenby, you mentioned a very important and uh, interesting word, desperate. Um, and, and uh, you know, that reminds me to a very contrasting statement uh, or by one of the former prime ministers of this country, actually. I won't uh, name him, but he said something to the effect, not, not his words, uh, but mine, but something to the effect of that uh, the roads in this country or the pavements in this country are not plastered with gold or something along those lines. Um, do you think there's enough empathy or enough understanding about the level of desperation that these people have? The British Red Cross works with around 30,000 people each year who are at all stages of the asylum process. And I think we see how difficult people's lives can be when they're here. And some of that is it's very difficult to navigate some of the complex processes that people have to, have to go through the support that people get, particularly while they're waiting for a decision on their asylum application, is pretty much the bare minimum. It's just over £5 a day, and they, if they need accommodation, they don't have any choice over where, where they are housed. And as we've seen over the last year or so, the Home Office staff use military barracks as well. So it, it's not like people are, are living a life of luxury when they're here, and people are waiting increasingly long periods of time as well or a decision they're aside and claim and they're just living in limbo. I think what we see as the British Red Cross, though, is that a lot of the support that we're able to give people, we're only able to do that because we have volunteers who work with us across the country. So we do see that actually when people have an opportunity to work with people, there is a warm welcome within the UK, and we saw that in response to 
the Syrian scheme previously, and even now with the Afghan resettlement scheme, more than 300 local authorities right across the UK have signed up to be, be part of that. So we do feel that there is this um, welcome within the UK, but we would just like to see that a little bit more now as the government reforms the asylum system. Who is most at risk, uh, you know, due to the current immigration rules, and and what kind of help and support is available for for them? Well, what, one of the biggest challenges that that we see at the moment within the rules, and particularly focused on those people who have left their home because they've been forced to leave because of war or persecution or violence, is those people who get separated from their families they're going through that process. And one of the big bits of work that we do as the British Red Cross is that we help those families who have been separated to reunite again. But that process can be very difficult. Even family members abroad need them to go to a UK embassy in order to submit the application. If those family members abroad, and quite often this might be women and children, uh, are in some of those precarious situations around the world that we see, they have to cross borders or mountains or seas just to get to those application centres. So it's a very dangerous process. And then the family members here in the UK, understandably, are very, very concerned about the experience of their families. So rather than somebody who's got refugee status in the UK being able to get on and rebuild their life here, they're worried about their family members, and that just hinders their, their integration as well in the UK. That's one of the concerns that we really have now about the Nationality and Borders Bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment, is that it potentially limits people's access to family reunion even more. And that's bad news for the refugees in the UK and their prospects for integration. It potentially leaves those family members overseas in great danger. But also, if that family then wants to be able to reunite, it's going to mean they're going to have to take dangerous journeys to do that, which I think is the complete opposite of what we want to see at the moment. So is there anything that uh, the British Red Cross is doing to challenge uh, the Nationality and Borders Bill? So I think it's really important that we continue to have conversations like the ones that we're having now so that we can explain what the potential implications are of the Nationality and Borders Bill. Actually, as we speak in the UK Parliament, the House of Lords are debating the bill and some of the measures that we've just been talking. And as the British Red Cross, we've been working with members of the House of Lords from all parties, the Labour members of the Lords, people from the Liberal Democrats and people from the Conservatives as well, in order to make sure that there are important debates happen as that bill goes, goes through. And we hope that over the next few weeks that there are some changes to the bill that are made in order to mean that actually it is going to achieve some of those things which we think are really important about asylum reform, that there are fewer people who are making dangerous journeys, that decisions are made far faster, and also that while people are waiting for a decision, they get the support and advice that they need. So one of the things um, which this uh, bill will bring uh, is the ability of the government to strip uh, people who have naturalised um, of their citizenship. What are their thought? What are your thoughts on that? I think depriving somebody of their citizenship is a huge step, and and this is something which the government has had the power to do for a number of years. We, like other organisations, are deeply concerned about the proposal within this nationality and borders bill that somebody should have their citizenship deprived, but not be notified of that and. Last week, when this was debated in the House of Lords, there are very, very strong speeches from members of the Lords from all sides of the House of Lords chamber. 
And we would hope now that as that bill progresses, that actually there's an opportunity for maybe the government to rethink that proposal. So you think that there is still some hope that um, that the House of Lords might um, propose some changes and it will go back to the House of Commons? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why, as the British Red Cross and working with other organisations, mm. we continue to engage around this bill, working with members of the House of Lords, but also continue to talk to people in the Home Office as well, to try and highlight some of the concerns that we have around the impact of the bill and to try and make sure that actually as the bill becomes law, but also importantly, when that bill, whatever it ends up looking like, is implemented, that it is trying to offer protection to those people who need it. Uh, thank you for staying with us on two fantastic interviews by the Drive Time team and you're speaking and listening to uh, Shazia Bhatti and John Feetenby. So they were talking about uh, one of the subjects that we spoke about earlier about the displacement of families and why they have to flee. But another very important subject that we covered uh, also in February was about the poverty. I mean, why are black children in the UK at a higher risk? And we spoke with our experts uh, on this subject to try and understand more about what's going on. But just one uh, simple fact for you that statistics show that more than half of the black children in the UK are affected by poverty and they are twice as likely to grow up in poverty than the white children. And I said this earlier as well. But what I'll do is um, go straight into our next uh, interview that we had with Professor David Strausser on this subject. Thank you. Let's get straight into the questions. Um, we want to ask you um, what psychological link does disability you know, have with children living in poverty? Yes. Um, one thing I think when we talk about disability, we need to think about not only physical disability mm-hmm. or cognitive impairment, but also emotional um, disabilities as well. Absolutely. And when we look at the psychological link, I think one of the biggest factors that we see is stress. And mm-hmm the stress that is created um, in the environment for the individual and a lot of the poor poor coping that individuals with disabilities may have Mm -hmm. to cope with stress that occurs uh, in daily life. And that that becomes uh, very overwhelming and is a link there. Mm -hmm. Um, Building on that too, I would say another psychological factor is lack of control. Mm. Many times people with disabilities have a lack of control feel a lack of control, and as a result, that creates, again, that stress component. They don't have control in their lives, and they also have uh, what I would say is a decreased social role. They, they don't uh, tend to be in positions that maybe is are valued, and that puts them at risk. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Loneliness is, an, is another one. I think people feel isolated and lonely, and I think that's only been uh, uh, magnified by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They feel, feel very lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're handling all these things alone. There's no resources around them. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, many of uh, individuals with disabilities uh, also experience adverse childhood experiences, um, you know, stressful family environments, uh, poor parenting, high conflict within their house, within their neighborhoods, um, and also, unfortunately, things like abuse or neglect that tend to... to um, contribute to to some of the issues that we see with children with disabilities, people with disabilities living in poverty. Absolutely, no. Thank you for that. And 
Professor David Strauss, what, what circumstances and you know what risks expose those living in poverty in uh, you know having a disability? Right. I think we can look at three categories of, of things. First of all, I think um, things I just mentioned from the individual perspective. Um, you know, they tend to have again increased stress. Um, they have a lack of resources around them too. People right. we take for granted that people have resources around them to help them, to give them advice, to yeah. give them support, that emotional support. And so I think the lack of those resources uh, contribute. I think the environment that people are in mm. creates significant risk factors and circumstances. Housing, poor housing, poor neighborhoods, poor schools, yeah. families that are stressed by lack of income, lack of a job, poor jobs, Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> poor relationships um, tend to create a lot of problems as well and risk factors and then uh, I'm going to call this area relational uh, relations, the relationships that people have, um, mm-hmm. those relationships just for the most part um, unfortunately aren't as healthy um, there's a lack of, of, of intimacy, there's a lack of, <laughs> of, of real meaning and connectedness mm-hmm. um, um, stress tends to take a lot of that over, and mm-hmm. the, the environment, the relationships that people have just aren't as rich in terms of the resources that come to the, the relationship, and therefore um, they may not benefit from the relationships as much as other people do. Absolutely. Um, how can you know the poverty disability model, um, you know, be applied to poor children in aiding them for? Uh, you know, a bad, better future. Yeah, so that's a model that Kylie and I developed, and I think the the model is applicable in the sense of what it does <clears throat> is provide some entry points for interventions that can be uh, developed or areas of focus mm-hmm. for people, such as building up, um, you know, uh, that's a term that we call sense of coherence, um, which is like people can control things within their environment, gain more control. So that's a combination of acquiring skills, mm-hmm. acquiring emotional resources and support um, for people to be able to gain control of things that happen in their environment. Um, through education and um, career uh, and employment supports, people might be able to develop more positive social roles, we know that people who are working or engaged in work tend to be viewed more positively, both young and old, um, than individuals who are not as involved. So helping people get into the work environment, the career uh, development areas are really important, and the model talks about that in terms of uh, indirectly about some of these areas of support and sense mm-hmm. of coherence to help in, in that area. I think also trying to strengthen families and giving families real tangible skills um, not just, you know, um, support, so to speak, of just listening to them as much as try to give this family resources and the individual resources so that it can manage these stresses that are occurring in their environment. Give them tangible skills and resources, how to manage stress within their families, how to deal with uh, children who may have uh, some learning difficulties, um, and to how can they manage their stress. Uh, of dealing with this. And then I think a big one that really uh, I mentioned just a minute ago is helping really increase employment and employment opportunities in terms of earnings and getting people better connected to the labor market and the job and jobs that are good structural jobs. Mm. Now some great points there. And, uh, 
you know, your, your, your research was published in 2007. So do you feel that compared to when your research was published, do you believe there's, there's significant change since then? And, you know, what are some of the changes or what, what still needs to be done? You know, it's an interesting point to bring it up that it was in 2007 and we're sitting here in 2022 right now. And there's a little irony that the article was published in the, right before the Great Recession happened and now we're talking after the pandemic or, you know, as the pandemic is in the later stages here, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and there, there were gains that were certainly made between 2007 and the 2019, 2020. Okay. I think my concern right now is with the pandemic that we're really unsure of how things are going to play out. We know that there's a lot more emotional distress, a lot more isolation, and a lot more um, changes happening within the labor market. With that said, I think there are bright spots that we can build on, certainly. I think uh, here in the United States, for example, we're really working with our youth to get them better connected to the labor market, to get them some job skills. Uh, We know that youth that have work experience at a younger age, maybe in the high school ages, are going to connect with the labor market better, are going to do better in terms of crime. Right. better in terms of mental health, physical health. So I think getting some early interventions that we've seen developed here in the United States um, that might translate to other intervention points around the world would be really helpful to help people, again, build tangible skills. And I think that has been a focus, and I think a very good focus um, that has changed over um, since 2007. I think realizing the importance of family involvement in this has really become to be a very important mm-hmm. uh, thing that has developed since 2007. I think we need to have families involved in this this process and support the families again and yeah. give them opportunities to be involved in this process. So <clears throat> I would say early interventions and family involvement are things that we've seen happen that I think are really important. Absolutely. I mean, times change, but they're, all, they're all, always similarities and, you know, beautifully put there. Thank you so much, David Strauser. Let's get straight into it. I mean, we're talking of knife crime. You've got the experience you've worked with, you know, you've been a you know, Crown Court judge um, with all of that experience. What we want to first ask you is why do you think, you know, we have huge and long-standing knife crime problems in the UK? Well, there are quite a long uh, list of reasons, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think my response is quite hard-hitting. Mm-hmm. I mean, the major reasons are social deprivation, mm-hmm. uh, lack of stable homes, austerity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think most important of all is there has been a major failure of both imagination and an uh, inability to act mm. with, uh, by central government, which is actually reinforced, I feel, by a lack of a palpable and genuine concern mm. for a whole generation of young people. The messaging about young people is so negative. It feeds heavily on the criminal justice system mm-hmm. and solutions offered there. It pay, pays far too little regard to its own failures and responsibility to effect meaningful change. Their promises about building back better, which is one of their favorite phrases, mm-hmm. is, is, is about as close as they ever come to an admission of their own failure. Mm-hmm. Just about every other or every organization who is now concerned with improving the lives of young people in london is saying the same thing as i've just said said to you london is saying it now people in croydon took to the streets a few weeks ago to say precisely that and it's really about time government listened 
they have a responsibility, their messaging is wrong, and they need actually to stand up and act for the next generation of young people. Thank you, Bruce. Absolutely couldn't agree with you more on that. And, um, you know, Bruce, we know you've worked with people who have been involved in in knife crime, and there's so many different problems in the youth, such as violence, knife crime, and that loss of hope, and, you know, the general feeling of alienation experienced by so many young people. So how do you address these problems? Well, I think we start from where we are now. You say, well, and this is not just me saying it, the YMCA tell us that some £260 million has been withdrawn from local authority children's services budgets between 2011 and 2017. Over 1,000 children's centres have closed, 760 youth centres. Major cities have lost 90% of their youth service budgets Mm -hmm. and spending on youth services was slashed in England by 73% between 2010 and 2020. I mean, on top of that, last year we had the highest level of deaths through stabbing of young people in London. Uh, and that should make its own point. Young people join gangs, get involved in drugs and county lines, do so really for two main reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, are, first of all, gangs are a substitute for the families they don't have. Yeah. And the temptation of earning far more than they get anywhere else is really irresistible to them. Crime and the need to get involved in crime to do that is not really something that impacts people once they've found themselves in that alternative uh, reality. Yeah, you, you might as well... Um, I mean, mm-hmm. you're barking up the wrong tree if you think you can just I- I- induce a change of attitude by reminding them of the consequences. There's mm-hmm. been some research recently actually that showed the opposite, that okay. once a young person is inside a gang and then he is told well if you do this if you do that this will be the consequence that is more likely to stiffen his resolve to resist that message from uh, uh, the society that he's rejected there is some solid evidence of that um, but that's, yeah. that, that's very interesting and, and this is something that I wanted to uh, actually ask you about basically mm. our punishment system or, or, or some you know would you, do, because some people argue it's too lenient for these people to you know, go. You know, th- they know that. You know, what worst comes to worst, I'm going to get a certain amount of years, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll be back out. So, so if there were tougher sanctions or tougher punishments, you're basically saying it's that's not going to make a difference. No, I don't think it makes a difference at all. Okay. I don't think that comes into the thinking equation of mm-hmm. a young person. I mean, mm-hmm. if it did, uh, those people would not have been killed. Uh, you get life imprisonment for killing somebody in this country, and you don't, you can't calculate how long that will be, mm-hmm. because uh, a tariff period would have to be set by the judge. Mm-hmm. So you are taking an enormous risk in doing that, but that doesn't seem to stop anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, what, what, what we need is, is a massive change of, in direction, mm-hmm. a sort of national plan, I think, to uh, which all parties can then agree to, sign up to, and follow. Mm-hmm. so that policies don't drop away with the next headline from a national newspaper, don't drop away through a change of government. I mean, can I, can I just give you one example of, course, of, of, course. Of, of the kind of nonsense that we're expected to absorb at the moment? It, on the 1st of February, there was a report issued by the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, 
mm-hmm. called a youth review uh, with the government's response. Uh, and the Secretary of State um, in that report said that she would give £4 million to fund the creation of what she oddly describes as tens and thousands, I'm not sure what tens and <laughs> thousands mean, or of new youth volunteering opportunities. Mm-hmm. Well, £4 million is peanuts on a national scale, mm. uh, and in any case, um, anyone who wants to volunteer can go and do that now without having uh, mm. the needing the money behind them. But the, the big promise that she made is to open some uh, 300 youth centres Mm-hmm. Uh, across the country. Now, I assume she means modern youth centres. Mm-hmm. I assume she means state-of-the-art youth centres. And she says she's going to spend £368 million on doing that. Well, I looked into that. Mm-hmm. I did some research. Mm-hmm. The cheapest decent youth centre is going to cost at least £6.5 million. Pounds. Mm-hmm. The more elaborate ones are going to cost about 10, billion, uh, 10 million pounds. Mm-hmm. And if you build um, 300 of those or try to build 300 of those, you're only going to get as far as 60 before you run out of money. Mm-hmm. And she's promising to do this over the next 10 years. Well, in five years' time, inflation would have taken over that sum of money. Mm-hmm. And all these places need need money spent on them to be maintained. It costs about £300,000 a year, I'm told, to maintain a centre. Mm-hmm. And, and I took examples of one centre in Barnsley mm-hmm. and another one in, in, in Croydon mm-hmm. and found that these are costing that amount of money to build mm-hmm. and they're extremely expensive to maintain. So all I'm saying is you don't need to spend £368 million. Let's spend £10 billion, $10 billion on young people. I mean, mm-hmm. let's let's look at that figure uh, realistically. Mm-hmm. They can spend, the government can spend on the pandemic some 18 billion pounds of uh, taxpayers' money in a very short space of time. Mm-hmm. They have managed to waste, according to the Good Law Project, some 10 billion pounds on fraud and mm-hmm. Uh, a PPE that doesn't work. Uh, they are going to spend about £120 billion on building HS2, a mm. very controversial scheme, which could be done much cheaper, and if it was done much cheaper, could fund much more than the £10 billion that would change the lives of a generation of young people. So what are the government doing? What is their priority? young people don't come into the equation. You've only got to look at what's happened since 2007 to mm-hmm. see that that's true. They mm-hmm. can't pretend that they are looking after uh, young people. And let's remember, the government have been in power for 12 years now. Mm-hmm. I don't wish to attack any particular mm-hmm. government, but the fact is they are in power and they've got to take the responsibility for that. Absolutely. Um, so uh, th- there's a few things I did. I did want to ask you about. Is one thing is, yeah. of course, we don't have capital punishment in in the, in the, in the UK. You know. Oh, thank if, goodness for that. <laughs> yes. I mean, if someone's got if someone's got a life sentence for killing someone, uh, how 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 many years does that amount to? Well, it, it depends how old they are. Okay. And it depend it depends upon the circumstances. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's murder, it's one thing. If it's manslaughter, it's another. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, 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 the point is, they will, a tariff sentence would be 
set, and depending on the age and the circumstances, it could be anything between 12 and 25 years, or possibly even more, mm -hmm. as a tariff sentence. Mm -hmm. But it's only at that point that the parole board would look at your case and decide whether you're fit to be released. Mm -hmm. So th we're talking, whether we're talking at the lower level or the higher level, mm -hmm. we're talking at a huge chunk mm -hmm. of a young person's life inside prison. Mm -hmm. Now, making that more severe is not going to change the equation, it seems to me. Uh, and uh, the death sentence is uh, certainly something that any civilized society should turn its back on, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing that you've spoken about, I mean, is, is actually youth, youth centers, right? Uh, making youth centers mm. and maintaining them and how you know, expensive it is. Um, what is actually the role of a youth center? What should they be, you know, what do right. they do that helps in preventing well, knife, knife crime? Someone, someone would ask. Yeah, well, that, thank you very much. I mean, that's a good question. In the old days, when I was brought up, mm -hmm. youth centers were run-down buildings which were available for use. Mm -hmm. by young people at very little cost, or they were old church halls which were repurposed mm -hmm. for that purpose. But these days we think of a, a, a state-of-the-art youth centre as a large space mm -hmm. which is purpose-designed for young people. Young people can go there to play sport, sport mm -hmm. to make music, to, to do performing arts, dance, whatever it happens to be, that interests them. It, it is a, a space for them to meet uh, people of their own age with aspirations who might want perhaps to meet employers, prospective employers there. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there are spaces for mentors in such places these days. So if a young person's going through problems, they can have uh, an opportunity for a private chat with somebody, an opportunity for a chat with a prospective employer, a mentor who might make suggestions about where they might move mm -hmm. next and what they might do with their lives. There's a, a space in these centers for recreation, um, healthy recreation of mm -hmm. all kinds, including obviously a cafe where people can meet in a, a, a much more uh, mm -hmm. uh, healthy and decent environment when they can talk and think about other possibilities for their lives mm -hmm. and make friends, make a new family, mm -hmm. a family that is different from the gang which they might otherwise be tempted into. Mm -hmm. But I think the involvement of businesses in, is vital in all this. Businesses need to contribute to the building of these centers. After all, they draw their employees from mm -hmm. that community. They need to be involved in the life of the community. And some research now shows that if businesses do that, people respond in kind. Mm -hmm. uh, and they respond towards the product that business is engaged in selling. So there is an advantage to everybody in this, and you can give tax breaks to businesses who do get involved in positive social action of this kind. We've just got to get away from this TikTok generation where people think that uh, they can get what they need very quickly. Mm. Of course, if you join a gang, you can probably get the kit you want to wear, you can get the trainers you want to wear because they'll be bought for you mm. to draw you into the gang. You can get all of that, but this is ephemeral. It doesn't last mm -hmm. and very often ends in death. It, it's a, a, a nasty, nasty world, and people should think twice before getting involved in that kind of thing. But government have got so much to contribute in making 
the environment for young people, what it looks like when they walk down the street, the way the town is for them as young people. Government need to look at that and show that they care. Because if you don't show respect to young people, you can't expect them to show you respect Absolutely. or their community respect in return. That's a big ask. We're talking about young people whose brains are changing, who are very vulnerable to mm -hmm. influences from their peers. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time they discover that's a mistake, it's too late. Absolutely. So we really need to stop this happening long before they're tempted in to county lines or, or the kind of lifestyle that I'm talking about. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Bruce, once again. I mean, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Well, thank you for staying with us. Uh, we will be approaching the five o'clock news and where we'll be talking about our next kind of subject. That's something I mentioned earlier in my introduction that is very, very important to us. It's about the promised son of the Ahmed Muslim community. And we'll get right into that with lots of um, sound clips uh, from our guest speakers who will talk in a lot more detail about that. And I look forward to uh, you know talking to you again. After that, here's the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Welcome back, and thank you for staying with us on the Drive Time Show. It's now into the second hour of our two-hour slot when we are going back and looking at February of 2022. I did say that, yes, we are in December, and in a few weeks' time, we will be in 2023. So it's um, very common sense for us to be able to review the months that we've been doing, and today is February. And I did say that um, in the second part of the show, we will be talking about something that's uh, very important to us in the community and that is the birth of the promised son and we will go into a lot more details in that um, and in terms of an introduction I like to uh, definitely as most people know that we are the um, Muslim community and the head of the worldwide community today who leads us in this worldwide um, organization and may Allah be his helper. But the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, um, who was the Mahdi who walked on this earth in 1835 to 1908, was the founder of our community. And from the humble villages of Ghadian, in the midst of a rural India, he announced to the world that God had told him through a revelation that he was the spiritual reformer of the latter days and his message reached to the corners of the earth and from all the way from the east to the west and the promised Messiah my peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, guided the one Mahdi in Arabic whose advent was prophesied not only in the Holy Quran, but also by our beloved Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, but also by other prophets, uh, may Allah be pleased with them, and other world religions as well. And the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was revealed by God Almighty, the two verses from Surah Al-Jumah containing the prophecy of the promised Messiah, and that was in chapter 62, verse 3 and 4. And I'll read it. And it said that he it is who has raised among the unlettered people a messenger from among themselves who recites unto them his signs and purifies them and teaches them the book and wisdom. 
although they had seen before in manifest misguidance. And among others are among them who have not yet joined them. He is the mighty, the wise. And that was in chapter 62 and verse 34. So there's quite a lot of uh, video clips we want to go through. And we will be covering aspects of who was he? Um, and then we, what was the need for a reformer? Why was there this prophecy that there will be a reformer? And then obviously the comparison to Hazrat Isa, uh, which is known as Jesus Christ. And also the finality of prophethood. And we'll go through all of that as well and talk about what the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that said that the sun would rise in the West. Very interesting comments. And what we like to do is obviously listen to some of our guest speakers who, who spoke on this subject. And the first one would be Imam Rabib Mirza Sub. So I would just play his clip right now. Uh, when the verse of uh, Surah Juma and in particular um, referring to verses 3 and 4 of Surah Jummah. So I'll read the translation first. Where God Almighty states that He it is who has raised among the unlettered people a messenger from among themselves who recites unto them His signs and purifies them and teaches them the book and wisdom, although they had been before in manifest misguidance, and among others from among them who have not yet joined them. He is the mighty, the wise. Now, when this particular verse was recited before the companions, yeah. um, when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had received this revelation, the companions were quite startled, and they inquired from the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as to what is meant by this verse, and in particular, the term of Akharina Minhum. Mm-hmm. So it is recorded in uh, Bukhari um, and in uh, the portion of uh, the tafsir of, of, of this very verse, in the chapter of this very verse in Bukhari. And it is mentioned that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was asked about this very matter three times. And on the third time when he was asked, then the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, responded. So this very thing shows that God Almighty was the one who had informed the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, about the explanation of this verse. And what is the explanation of this verse? The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, <clears throat> as I mentioned, that he was surrounded by his companions at that time, and towards his right, there was... Hazrat Salman Farsi seated. Now, Hazrat Salman Farsi, as we know, in within his name, he was uh, a non-Arab. He was a Persian. So the Holy Prophet placed his hand upon his shoulder and said, "Lokana, lokana That if faith were to ascend to the Pleiades, so the Pleiades is the furthest star. People or men or a man from amongst these different traditions of Rajalun and Rijal, which means man and men. So he said that some men from amongst the Persians, they will bring back that faith. In other words, they will be the ones to rejuvenate the message of Islam. Now we see that 
Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian who claimed to be the Messiah and Mahdi, he was of Persian lineage. Uh, sometimes, you know, the non-Ahmadis, unfortunately, they try to discredit Mirza Ghulam Ahmed as being from Persian descent. But there is a book by the name of the Chiefs of Punjab. I'm forgetting the author's name. Uh, again, he's, he's I, I believe he's a, a non, non-Muslim, um, if, if my memory serves correct. So he has written the lineage of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, and from there it proves that Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed is of Persian origin. Mm-hmm. Even Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed received um, a revelation. Um, I believe the wording is Khuzut Tawheed. Uh, ya Abna al-Fars, that, O sons of Persia, uh, hold fast to the rope of the oneness of God. So, in this manner, we see that this very prophecy was so beautifully and magnificently fulfilled within the holy personage of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. And of course, he did not bring his own message. Rather, it was the message of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that he presented in its prestigious and pristine form. Mm. So, Imam, Imam Rabib, can I just uh, pose this question? Now, if Islam claims to be the eternal universal religion, you know, then you know, why is there a need for a reformer such as the promised Messiah? Uh, may Allah be pleased with him. I mean, is the Holy Quran not enough as a guide to Muslims? Well, that the very question has also been answered within the third verse of Surah Jummah, the chapter that we're talking about right now. Now, in here, where God Almighty has stated, kitaba," and teaches them the book. So, the fact of the matter is, the term that we use of Mu'allimul Kitab, one that teaches the book, is someone that has to be appointed by God or divinely inspired by God Almighty. So that's why there is a, a necessity, there is a need for a reformer who can teach Islam, who can teach the Holy Quran in its prestigious and pristine form. We know very well, not even talking about this very era, but the previous era, even after the Khulafai Rashidin, <clears throat> we saw how Islam unfortunately, unfortunately had descended into darkness. And the reason for this was because the Muslims had ultimately gone so far away from the teachings of Islam that that prestigious and pristine um, cover that had been protecting uh, the Muslims, that had vanished. And that's why there is a necessity for a reformer to come and teach the Holy Quran. Mm -hmm. We see nowadays that, for example, just one, one very simple example. There is no mention within the Holy Quran that a person that reverts from Islam or becomes an apostate, he should be killed. Yet we see that amongst many denominations of, of, of Muslims, they hold this concept of uh, you know the, the death penalty for apostasy within Islam. Or we see that there is this concept of uh, abrogation within the Holy Quran. Even though, of course, 
there were you know saints within the past as well but that concept of abrogation was there that some verses of the holy quran have been abrogated so that is why the concept of muallimul kitab and hazrat masihullah the promised messiah hazrat mirza ghulam ahmed has expounded upon this factor that a muallimul kitab is one who is divinely inspired by god almighty and after having understood the holy quran through divine insight through divine reasoning through divine understanding thereafter he is able to proliferate and propagate those teachings in its prestigious form of course the holy quran is nonetheless a guidance for all muslims and any single person can derive guidance from it however you do need someone to stipulate and elaborate upon the verses mm-hmm. you know it's very simple not even though we speak english none none of us you know i there's maybe a few people in the world but you know we as 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 the ordinary um you know part of society we cannot claim that we know english in and out i mean there's probably so many different terminologies so many different yeah, words phrases that, which uh, we phrases. yeah colloquialisms yeah so we can't we we can't say that you know we know english the english language 100% mm-hmm. it's the same with the arabs the arabs cannot claim that they know arabic you know 100% in a normal dictionary the basic lexicon that's generally used in 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 arabic it's known as al-munjiz and there are around 1000 Mm, or or 1000 or more uh, root words within it can somebody claim that they know 1000 root words so no person can claim that they have perfect uh, you know knowledge of of Complete the language knowledge. inside and out so uh, of course you know there are lexicographers out there but they may be in the the minority but because the holy quran is something that you know it does n- it, not only does it need uh someone to you know translate it for the general public as well but it needs someone to also talk about the spiritual verities that have been mentioned within there because this is not you know it's not a book of science even though it talks about scientific discoveries mm-hmm. it's not a, a book of poetry yet the way that it has been written you know it is there is um you know harmony within it there's a A, a rhyme there's rhythm within it mm-hmm. uh it's it's not a book uh, of 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 marriage yet it talks about the various different articles of marriage so that's why there is a necessity for a person individuals who are divinely inspired that can elaborate and commentate with upon the holy quran in order for you know the basic layman to understand it mm-hmm. otherwise if everybody were, was to go around and interpret the holy quran they could interpret it to you know their own fancy mm, but could, could i suppose you know some verses take literally and you yeah, know we can see we can see exactly where that can lead you in terms of, of you know going to you know i suppose more extreme sides of uh, viewing the religion of uh, islam i think bas has got a a, a follow up uh, question for yeah you. imam rabi just to follow up on your answer if a promised reformer was supposed to come and like you said a muallimul kitab a, a person who teaches the book why is it that many of the muslims today 
uh, in large numbers have not accepted this promised reformer. You see, this is, again, it's a very interesting question, and it's something to put before them, <laughs> because we have mm-hmm. accepted him. But you see, the, the fact of the matter is that whenever a prophet comes in the world, we've always seen it, his community is always in the minority. And we saw that at, in every single prophet's time, even in the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, you know, initially, the Muslims were in the minority. Uh, we see the battle of Badr, there were only around 313 companions that had to, you know, fight a defensive battle against, you know, an army laden with armor and swords of, of, of a thousand men. So every era, whenever God Almighty sends a prophet, there will always be opposition. There will always be people that will oppose him and not accept him. So that's why we see that not many Muslims or, you know, many, there's been many denominations um, that have been born within Islam and, and they are still awaiting the Messiah, they are still awaiting the Imam Mahdi because they have not fully grasped um, the understanding of the Holy Quran. You see, this is, again, if we, let's, let's talk about this from the Holy Quran itself. Mm-hmm. And I believe this is something that uh, His Holiness also mentioned in the Friday Sermon. Now, the question is, God Almighty in Surah Fatiha, we read this five times a day, at least, within our, within, you know, within our obligatory prayers. At least five times a day. And then obviously, in each unit, you recite it once, so you, know, you recite it at least maybe 30, 40 times a day. When we recite it's very fascinating to understand why we recite this prayer. Of course, from the traditions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we know that Maghdub refers to the Jews and Abdalin refers to the Christians. However, when we look at this specific era, <clears throat> we have to understand it that this was in actuality a prophecy. Mm-hmm. That in this era, there will be some Muslims that will have donned <clears throat> the garb of the Jews. And of course, I do not mean to offend anyone, but what I mean in the sense that just as the Jews had objected Jesus, so too will there be a group of Muslims like them that will ultimately reject the mm-hmm. Messiah as well. Mm-hmm. And then we see Abdali, and this is also, uh, you know, that uh, there's various different um, campaigns against the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of, of, of Allah be upon him. Um, you know, how the unity of God is actually being attacked through the concept of Trinity, I mean, so these were actual prophecies for the latter day. So if the Muslims were to read the Holy Quran in this aspect and ponder, why why is it that we recite Surah Fatiha within our five obligatory prayers? You know, who, why, when we say that God Almighty do not make us of those people who have incurred your wrath and do mm-hmm. not make us of those people that are misguided, what are we praying about? So this is exactly what we're praying about, that, oh God, 
do not make us of those people, those maghdub, those people that have incurred your wrath in the past. And who were they? They were those people that rejected the Messiah. So we say that God do not make us of those people that have rejected the Messiah. And do not make us of those people that ultimately defy your unity. So these are those things that the Muslims need to ponder over. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly, you know, this understanding has only come through the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. Otherwise, we would not understand why God Almighty has taught us these prayers. Mm. It's through his interpretation. Well, not interpretation, but uh, I think the point you were making earlier on is through uh, the promised Messiah's, I suppose, yeah, yeah, re-relating of um, the Quran to the wider public. Uh, to the wider, um, not just uh, Muslim community, but to the world, that uh, there's an acceptance to the unity of God. Welcome back, and thank you very much uh, for staying with us. What a fantastic interview there with Imam Rabib Mirza Sab, and that's uh, fantastic. And, you know, we did mention about the need for a reformer, which is very aptly answered in that t- interview. Uh, so one of the other questions that always get asked is about the comparison of Hazrat Isa, or Jesus Christ, um, the comparison between our beloved promised Messiah, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and that of the arrival of uh, Jesus uh, Christ, uh, may Allah be um, pleased with him, who also brought a revival of the teachings of the Torah with the advent of Christianity and the rights which Torah had granted. I mean, they still apply to the followers of the Messiah, but Jesus Christ taught that for the sake of religion, for the defense of the Torah and Moses, we must offer sacrifices and cease to defend our rights by force. I mean, there's so much more, but uh, there is a, a wonderful interview which I'd like to play next, which carries on this subject. Thank you very much. Assalamu and peace and blessings be upon you. Ahmed, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Or we can hear you loud and clear. So we're talking about Ahmadiyat uh, this afternoon. Uh, so what is the well, the Ahmadi perspective on the crucifixion of justice? Uh, justice the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him. I think uh, um, uh, that's a very, very important uh, point um, because uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is one... one uh, <laughs> One thing that has caused a lot of uh, um, uh, confusion in, in religion. I mean, you look at the Judaism, uh, the Jews, and they, they say no, he wasn't. He was literally put on the cross and he died on the mm-hmm. cross. Um, and as such, he's not the right person who came. Uh, you look at the Christians and they say, yeah, he died on the cross and he saved them from the from the from the ascents through the blood. And then you look at the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and we have a completely different view to them. He was the very same person who was actually put on the cross. Uh, but apparently he didn't die because he's actually suffered uh, about three days of uh, persecution and, and torture, which made him very weak. I mean, sleepless night and that kind of uh, uh, torture that he went through made him very weak. So he was in a sort of a swoon, uh, unconsciousness on the cross. Uh, and then actually he he came out as if he was dead. But in actual in actual sense, you look at the Bible everywhere, and there's no, I mean, a confirmation of his death apart from a, stand, a, a somebody who was just standing by who said he gave up the ghost. 
uh, apparently because you look at him on the cross and he looks as if he's actually dead but he wasn't dead because when he was taken from the cross uh, this very same Jesus Christ taken from the cross the pierces his, his ribs and then mm-hmm. the, 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 the Bible says water and blood gushed forth and this is certainly somebody whose blood is certainly pumping working efficiently because if, he, if he's dead then there's no way blood will be able to come come out and then also when he met his disciples as well it was it was quite clear he showed his hands and his his, his feet to them that look at look at the holes in my hands i'm the very same jesus and did you don't you believe what i told you before about the prophecy that i gave you so the Ahmadiyya believers he was the very same person who was put on the cross and actually allah saved him from that particular uh, disgrace and as such his legs were not br- broken he was there on the cross for just literally about three to six hours and a young man of about 30 years there's no way you're going to die on the cross for that period uh, he was so fit enough that he wouldn't die. Uh, the other um, thieves, who one on the right, one on the left of Jesus Christ, uh, Salam, were, were still alive and literally beaming. So for them, they have to break their legs. And you can see from all the episodes that happened that it was actually um, uh, some sort of a, uh, a, a way that uh, God saved him. And also the pilot and his people, they actually find a nice way to protect Jesus Christ Hence, they didn't break his, leg, his legs. And then also, he was given to his own pe- people who actually adorned him to go and put him in the sepulchre to save him as well. So he was the same person who was put on the cross and he never died on the cross. And we see that he survived crucifixion. Um, we find evidence that he traveled around after this. And, you know, the promised Messiah on whom be peace has stated in many of his books as well that Jesus survived crucifixion and then he traveled to Kashmir. So what evidence is there for this journey? How can we prove that this journey happened? The, the, there's a few um, uh, researchers who's, who's actually um, written about, about this particular episode. I mean, we look at the Prophet Alayhi Salam. He himself actually um, sent his companions to do a research on it after all the guidance and then the revelation that he received from Allah. So he sent his, his companions to to go and, and do that investigation and apparently it was actually revealed that yes, that particular person whose tomb um, uh, or his graveyard uh, is as a Srinagar in, in Kashmir was, was apparently the very same person whom they called um, Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at the, um, the, the history, it would, it would tell you um, we, we've traced the life of Jesus from the escape of the cross to travel uh, and then abode in the mountains of uh, Afghanistan and in the Vale of Kashmir in a successful search of the lost tribes of the Israel. Because apparently, when Jesus Christ was, was sent in the Bible, it was quite clear that he's been sent to the lost tribe of Israel. And then we realized that at the time that Jesus was there, there were only two of the tribes of the Israelites who were there. The ten tribes have actually been, been sent away. They've actually gone in the, uh, away just because of the treatment of the king of uh, Nebuchadnezzar due to, due to the hard treatment that he gave to the Jews. And then they went away and they stayed around the, the area of Afghanistan, Kashmir, and that's where they settled. So Jesus Christ, being a prophet of God, after surviving the crucifixion, had to go and make that uh, preaching to those people. And that was his, and we, we know, I mean, we have one uh, a British uh, resident who was in Kashmir at the time, uh, of uh, 20, uh, about 1,900 years ago, in the person of Sir Francis' uh, young husband. Uh, and he, he writes that uh, 
about 1,900 years ago, a saint of the name of Yus Asaf, who preached in parables and used many of the same parables as Jesus Christ uses, as for instance, the parable of the sower. That is the one, I mean, this is, I don't want to go into that. That's, his tomb is in Srinagar, and the theory is that Yus Asaf and Jesus are one and the same person. So this is another um, historian who lived at the time in Kashmir, who writes about, about the fact that and I actually ha- happened to have a, 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 a one a, a incident uh, somewhere about uh, about ten years ago in the United Kingdom, somewhere in uh, um, Milton Keynes, which actually amazed me because that was when I realized that all this research, even though I knew it was true, but that was the first time I was actually experiencing it myself. There was this taxi driver who actually came to pick me, and then we we, we engaged ourselves in a conversation. And the very first time I asked him, so where are you from? And he says, oh, I'm from Kashmir. So really, that, that's an interesting thing because it's the first time I've actually had someone from Kashmir. And I said, uh, so what, what, when you say you're from Kashmir, what, who are you? What, what are you? What's your origin? Also, we, we are Jews, actually. So you can see someone living in the United Kingdom, originally from Kashmir, telling me that he's a Jew. So we know from all the research and then the, uh, the evidences which has been proven and and BBC has also done a research on that. There, there are a lot of research now after when the promise are with the revelation has sent these people to re- do the research. There has been so many other research which has actually gone on after that to prove that that particular individual who is there, who is known as Yus Asaf, I mean Yus simply means uh, uh, in, in, the, in the, um, uh, the, the Jewish, it's, it's, when you say someone who actually gathers people, mm-hmm. and then uh, Asaf, Asaf, it's a, it's a sort of a, a traveler. So so that when you put that together, it's somebody who actually travels to just gather his people. So that's that's the sort of name that he used. And we have another research that shows that they call the person who is buried there as uh, the prince. Uh, um, uh, uh, and, and they describe him in the same description as that of the Jesus Christ. So there are so many research which actually confirms that, but I believe this is not a platform to go through all those. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, just, for another show. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just briefly, Amit, um, I mean, we know the, 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 the teachings of the Messiah, um, on the concept of salvation, the concept of the, the forgiveness of God Almighty, the justice of God Almighty. How does that negate the, the Christian concept of salvation, the teaching of the promised Messiah? The promise that, um, um, and we, alhamdulillah, um, we are so blessed that uh, Allah sent him because I don't know what would have happened to us <laughs> because uh, we all know the ascendancy of Christianity now and the teaching is very, very interesting to know. Apparently, my mom is a Christian, so I've lived in, in a Christian home all, all my life, right? I've, I've lived with her and I know the teaching very much. And it's uh, quite interesting to have that kind of teaching that... Um, uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, then apparently the blood actually washes your sin away. Mm-hmm. Now, that would simply mean that you don't necessarily have to worry yourself following the law. And this is something that uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the St. Paul, they call him, actually made. That, uh, um, oh yeah, you don't need to worry yourself about the law now, because Jesus has come, and he's died on the cross, and his blood has washed your sins away. So that sort of atonement is how that, that God himself have to turn himself into a human being, come into the world, and then die for his sins, or for his blood to wash your sin away. And that is the only way that we can be saved. 
Now, when you look at the teaching of the prophets, they are very beautifully using the Holy Quran. And in fact, the Bible itself, and then actually the actual good teaching of Jesus Christ himself, it simply tells that you need to actually use the law because Jesus himself says, I never came to destroy the law. And the promise that then beautifully says, you need to fight for your salvation. The grace of Allah is what is going to eventually take you out of whatever sin that you're committing. But when you look at the concept of sin, of the blood, atoning your, your, your sins, mm -hmm. that is what has actually led to a lot of uh, evil in the, in, the, in the land now. Because you see what the Christians do. Look at the, 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 even the priests and, and whatever. What they do is they commit all this sin and they'll, they'll tell you, listen, don't worry. The blood of the sins that we all you need to do believe in the blood of Jesus Christ and believe that He's actually God who Himself who has come and you should be fine. Whereas the promise that teaches that beautiful teaching smashes that uh, uh, concept into pieces. That this particular teaching can never ever save us. And if you really want to save yourself from it, then take the good teaching that Jesus Himself brought, put it into practice. Turn to the Almighty God and seek forgiveness and beg God to what to take you out of that. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, sin, and then you don't need God to actually come. God is a, a God of justice. He wouldn't take somebody's blood. He won't kill somebody else for your sake because the Bible actually is against that. Each person has to die, and then you are accountable for your own sin. So how on earth would somebody, a, a dear beloved of God, would be killed? To save you and you can com continue committing your sin and he is going to be killed for you that doesn't make sense in any way shape or form well fantastic uh, what two fantastic interviews that we've just played to you today uh, covering the subjects that we covered in January uh, sorry in February uh, this year in 2022 I mean I, I just was intrigued by listening to uh, both of them. We do have another one uh, for you as well, which is from Imam Zishan Khalid as well. But as our listeners are wondering why we're playing all these uh, clips, because, you know, we've been covering the month of February and we've been highlighting the many topics and the challenges that people faced in the first hour, um, all the way from uh, children, knife crime, to the displacement of people uh, around the world, and also even issues of the unfair rules that are, are causing so much uh, dissatisfaction around the world and, and the risk to children with knife crime and, and the effects it's had and, and how there are the solutions uh, to a lot, of, a lot of that. And we spoke to two, um, two um, guest speakers there as well uh, about those subjects and then the third as well with uh, Professor Strauser who explained about the details of the knife crime as as well and it was really fascinating to listen to also Shazia Buddy and John Fitonby who, who spoke about those um, issues but anyway we're going to carry on with this subject of what we've been talking about uh, in the second hour because we did say that the month of February also was very important to us as a, a month for the Muslims, um, especially when they come together to remember the prophecy concerning the birth of the promised sum and its fulfillments. And we've been talking a lot about that. Um, why was there a need? What was needed for the 
the uh, the reformer and the finality of prophethood and also well, without what our holy prophet Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said that the sun would rise in the west all very interesting kind of comments there that we uh, that we'll obviously delve into more detail but 100% what I like to do is play the uh, the audio clip with an interview with Imam Zishan Khalid uh, on this subject and explaining it further here you are so Imam Zishan, uh, in one source of Izala Oham, a book of the promised Messiah, may peace be upon him, the promised Messiah, he states that more messiahs can come. So now, does this contradict the concept of Khatm al-Nubu'at, of the finality of prophethood, which is central to Islam? Jazakallah uh, for your question. So first of all, um, as you've been discussing and as your previous callers have also made very clear that According to our understanding of Khatm al we understand it to mean that the Holy Prophet وسلم, was the Khatm al the seal of all prophets, the most superior, the most uh, excellent. And the Prophet وسلم, he came as a subordinate to the Prophet وسلم, and in no way did he was, was his advent contrary or did it contravene the seal or the finality uh, of prophethood. Now, when we present uh, this this concept, um, one one allegation is is raised um, is that certain quotes of the Prophet which he has made in his in his books, one of which is is uh, Oham, and there are also many other examples. For example, in Brahim Hamdiya, where he has uh, spoken of the possibility of 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 multiple messiahs coming mm-hmm. um what we need to understand is that firstly these quotes are taken out of context um and the, the wider context not just the context of of the book where he has said something we have to look at these quotes in uh, in light of his of the all the writings of the prophet Islam and what he has said and uh, a quick sort of, it is quite a lengthy discussion on what the Prophet meant, but we know from the writing of the Prophet that he um, clarified that I am uh, a subordinate of the Holy Prophet and no other um, prophet or no or no uh, a new prophet can be sent after him. So anything he said is uh, in line uh, with this, that no new prophet with new Sharia can come after the Prophet and just as um, the, the non-Ahmadis or the, the, the majority of non-Ahmadis believe that uh, Jesus salam will be sent as a Messiah uh, uh, it, 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 to the Muslims and this does not contravene the finality of prophethood in the same way I have been sent so as far as, as these quotes are concerned the, the Prophet Islam uh, was speaking about the, um, the, the, the or you can say the uh, the characteristics of uh, Messiah and Messiah is a person who, who purifies, who, who cleans and um, who has been granted certain attributes. So the Prophet uh, what we understand from this was speaking in a very uh, specific context um, that many people like this can appear. However, he nowhere did he say that other prophets can appear. And as far as the Prophet has written in his other writings that he is the Messiah of this age. Um, and he is the Messiah who was uh, fulfilled. Uh, now, the Prophet in certain places he has explained this, uh, and he has stated it is possible maybe in the future these prophecies can be fulfilled again um, and can be fulfilled in a different way. However, this does not mean 
um, that if uh, we suppose that they are fulfilled again, that the, the status of that person will be any different from the status of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi We as Ahmadi Muslims believe that according to the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that when the Messiah and the Mahdi will appear, uh, and of course we believe them to be one person after him, uh, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam stated uh, that after the advent of the Messiah there will be khilafa um, or when the khilafa will be re-established that will continue so we believe that as long as the khilafa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat continues who are the successors of the Prophet Sallallahu and then uh, there is no need for another person to appear mm-hmm. uh, because it is a, it is one sort of series of, of continuity um, of the mission of the Prophet As for you know metaphorical interpretations, then there are there are many uh, interpretations of the words of the Prophet However, to allege based on these uh, uh, on these extracts that we have a different belief which completely goes against the the, the writings of, of the Prophet then this, uh, this this is incorrect. Mm, because I suppose uh, the the most um, heard of allegation against the promised Messiah, may Allah be pleased with him, and the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as a whole, is that you know we take him, uh, the promised Messiah, uh, that is to be you know the next prophet uh and that yeah. is like uh, i suppose like a carte blanche that uh he uh, supersedes uh the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him uh, and i think that is the main uh i suppose misunderstanding or allegation that is leveled against the the community as a whole yeah so Indeed. you know we we touched on this both myself and uh, Basel uh, uh just uh, prior to you coming on online you know so can you explain you know uh, the concept of Katman Nubuat from a lexical point of view uh, or perspective I mean why has this word caused so much conf- controversy you know why is it at the center of these I suppose these, these, these misunderstandings in a, in a nice way or arguments in a, in a <laughs> kind of like a, a heated discussion yeah so I think um, I think if we step back a bit and we look at the, all these debates and discussions and uh, the word khatam, um, I would say that uh, it's not actually the word khatam in itself, mm-hmm. which is uh, or our understanding of the word khatam in itself, which is um, you can say uh, contentious or contentious. controversial yeah, between us and the non-Ahmadis because they also. Uh, have a belief which in some ways uh, appears to contradict uh, the understanding of the word khatam. According to their understanding, it seems to contradict that, which is that they believe a person, a prophet, uh, will descend from the heavens, um, that that person being Jesus, son of Mary, and he will be the Messiah for the latter days. And this is the belief held uh, by the majority of uh, of at least the, the Sunni Muslims as well, so this um, so they believe in the coming of someone after the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Now, of course, they have certain explanations for that and interpretations that uh, he is uh, that Jesus was. They say, for example, that Jesus was before the Holy Prophet Sallallahu So even if he does come again afterwards, then this does not count as uh, going against or breaking the seal. 
uh, that's one explanation. And then mm-hmm. some, 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 some have also some scholars have said that uh, he will come, but not as a prophet, which then presents us with many other problems. You know, how 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 does someone have their prophet removed? Um, so I think the the the, the main contention uh, between us is the is the understanding of of who or the identity of the Messiah. Um, however, that has um, in order to you can say uh, to refute. The, the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community's beliefs, the, the f- focus has been laid on, on, on the word Khatam, which mm-hmm. appears in the Quranic verse, Makana Muhammadun Abba Ahadim Rijalikum, Walakin Rasulullahi wa Khatam al Nabiyin. That, you know, Muhammad was not the father of any of your men, but he is the seal of the prophets. Um, and uh, he's, he's the messenger of Allah and the seal of the prophets. So Khatam, uh, briefly, it, um, so, so Khatam means, it's an Arabic word, it means seal, it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most excellent, and it also means the, the most superior. And this is the meaning which we, as Ahmadi Muslims, we, we accept. And this is also accepted by the uh, majority of uh, of non-Ahmadis. And even um, the the sense of khatam, the meaning final, is also accepted by us, Ahmadi Muslims, because we believe in the Hajj Quran, we believe in the words of the Prophet and we believe that uh, he was the last prophet in his excellence, in his superiority, and that, and he was the last law-bearing prophet. And uh, this does in no way contradict the uh, understanding, uh, the, the, the interpretations of, of Muslims, even from the very early uh, Islamic scholars. They have expressed this and uh, have explained the word khatam in many, many, many ways, such as um, the exam- one example is that of um, uh, going back to the time of the Prophet Aisha the wife of the Prophet who said that say that he is the uh, seal of the prophets, but do not say that there is no prophet after him. Um, uh, and similarly, we find other uh, narrations and uh, and the scholars, the salaf, the, 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 you can say the the successors of the companions who uh, interpreted uh, this uh, to uh, to mean that uh, he was the most superior, the Holy Prophet ﷺ was the most superior prophet. Um, unfortunately, the allegation which is leveled against us is that we do not believe that he was the seal of the prophets, which is completely wrong because we uh, believe in every single word of the Holy Quran. And uh, the Khatim al-Nabin was a title uh, given to the Holy Prophet ﷺ in the Holy Quran, so how can we not believe in it? Um, and we believe in it in all of its meanings, and not just uh, uh, like a limited uh, or a very narrow sort of meaning that he was the last uh, prophet. We believe that he was the last, and he was the most excellent and the most most superior. So this is our understanding, and um, we and this is our understanding of the prophethood of the mm-hmm. Prophet Muhammad that he his prophethood, his nubuwa was a reflection of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Um, and in the verse uh, in the Holy Quran, we we find another indication that prophethood uh, is continuous in the Ummah of the Prophet where Allah the Almighty says He's not the father of any of your men. And this again is an indication of the fact that yes, the Holy Prophet sallallahu did not have a physical progeny. However, his spiritual power and greatness was such that he was able uh, that those who followed him and followed him in the most perfect manner could attain the uh, the station of uh, prophethood uh, mm-hmm. as a follower prophet. And this was 
the person uh, of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad that he followed. He was so he followed. He was such an ardent devotee of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that Allah Almighty raised him to that status mm-hmm. uh, as a result of his uh, his following and his uh, emulation of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, um, Imam, we've asked uh, we, on our Instagram page. We've asked a question. You know, what do you know, or what do you want to know about Islam and uh, And I'm just looking at some of the, the the questions there that our listeners have put out. And in fact, I think uh, in your first two, or you know, the time that we've had with you, you've answered most of them. But um, if I can just put to you, yeah, one question. Yeah, why do Ahmadis not pray behind other Muslims? Okay, that's a very good question. It's a very good question. Yeah. Um, so let's let's look at the uh, the fiqh, which is jurisprudence of uh, of non-Ahmadi Muslims. Yeah. As you know, there are various schools of thought within the non-Ahmadis, and one thing which we find in all of these schools of thought, and, and in every second denomination, that they have certain conditions for who who can be the imam. Yeah, okay, not anyone can be the imam. The Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in the hadith has said very very clearly that a certain a certain person he has to be righteous uh, and he has to have a good understanding of the Holy Quran. That this is the person that you should uh, choose as your imam. And uh, after that, you know, in the jurisprudence of various sects, uh, they they have gone. You know, there are various conditions that this person should be an imam, a person who holds this creed, this belief. So it's not a new thing for you know for for a certain sect to have certain conditions for who can lead uh, you as an imam. Now, as Ahmadi Muslims, uh, we believe in the imam of the age, the uh, leader of this age, who was sent by Allah the Almighty. And we believe that a prerequisite for someone to be able to lead someone else in prayer is to accept that person because he was sent by the Holy by, by the Allah the Almighty, and he was uh, commissioned by Allah the Almighty. And everyone who accepted him has accepted him, and those who have not accepted him, then uh, they have not uh, accepted the directive of the Holy Prophet وسلم, which was to accept the person who was to be sent as an Imam. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore. We are also declared non-Muslims by uh, other by, by other denominations and sects, and they do not consider us Muslims. Um, and this is another reason why we cannot, as uh, as Muslims, pray behind, uh, or we do not, because the Prophet ﷺ, the Imam of the age, has said that we cannot pray behind uh, other Muslims because prayer is such a state which has certain conditions, and the Imam must be. A person who meets those conditions, and for us as Ahmadi Muslims, we cannot pray behind someone who considers us, considers considers us firstly as disbelievers and who does not accept the Imam of the age. So, for this reason, we cannot follow them in this in this act, in the act of prayer. However, this does not mean that we cannot have uh, relations with them. We cannot uh, have have good ties and friendship with them. This is not uh, the teaching of Islam, and we do not, uh, and it's not the teaching of the Ahmadi community. We do not cut off ties with anyone. It is only when it comes to prayer that it's a very uh, delicate matter of faith. We cannot pray behind them. However, this does not mean that we cannot pray in a non-Ahmadi mosque uh, or that we cannot pray separately to where another Muslim is praying. Um, however, it only means that we cannot follow them directly in prayer because of the status of prayer and because of the significance of prayer, salah in Islam. Mm. I suppose if you view that, uh, I mean, it's very succinct reply to that that question uh and from more of a common sense point of view it's just like why i mean i say why would we because then it would prove ourselves to be hypocritical 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, we 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 know how the Quran kind of looks at hypocrites in that in that yeah. sense. Um, so yeah, that's a very uh, very very good answer to that question. I think Basil's got another question for you. Yeah. So another question that was asked um, on our Instagram page, uh, if I'd like to pose it to you, Mamzishan. Um, it interlinks with what we're discussing as well about another subordinate prophet coming. The question is, how do we recognize a truthful prophet? So when a man is coming and claiming that he is a prophet, what can we look out for to know that he's a truthful one, he's a truthful prophet? Mm. Okay, it's, it's, it's a very uh, very question which requires a vast answer. I'll try and, try and uh, answer it as, <laughs> Synthesize as, as quickly it. as possible. Um, so... Um, I think to recognize, I mean, if this is a general question, um, let's say in today's day, how do we know a person is a truthful prophet? So firstly, um, as Muslims, you know, we've talked about, we believe the Prophet was the final prophet. However, he did prophesy that someone was to come. And in this context, in the context of Islam and the prophecies which we have, firstly, one would should look at the uh, conditions in which that prophet was to appear. Um, are those conditions prevalent? Um, is uh, this a time for a prophet? Right. So a lot of Muslims today are they realize that uh, they, you know that the Ummah, the, the the world in general, and the Muslim people they are they are in need of guidance, um, and they know that the Quran is complete. They know that the Holy Prophet sallallahu brought the, the the final message, but there is something missing. And then when we go back to the prophecies, we see that the Holy Prophet sallallahu foretold a time when. Uh, nothing would remain of Islam except uh, its name, and uh, or nothing of the Quran except his uh, inscription. And he even said, that the mosques of the Muslims would be full but devoid of all guidance. Um, and he said that the worst people, that the scholars of that time would be the worst people under the sky. Um, that they would be the source of all uh, of all discord. Mm-hmm. And it would return to them. So first, we see are these conditions prevalent today? Um, and it's not just the Holy Prophet which foretold this. All of the holy personages and books they foretold of a time of you know great turmoil. So first, you'd have to see is there a need for a prophet? I think the first important thing is is there a need for guidance? Once you understand that, and um, I think anyone who really looks at the world today will mm-hmm. recognize from any uh, religion that there is definitely a need for a prophet and a need for guidance. Then uh, the question would be, okay, are we going to then, how, well, what's the solution? Uh, do we need a prophet or do we, you know, reform uh, ourselves? Um, and we see that there have been many attempts. Uh, within Islam, there are so many um, uh, movements who have sought to reform and are seeking to reform, yet uh, things keep going from, you know, bad to worse. So then uh, we, would, we should, you know, as Muslims, we should turn to uh, the guidance given by the Prophet ﷺ. We should turn to his description of uh, the Messiah, of the mm-hmm. of the Mahdi. And we should study this, and we should see that, is there someone today who fulfills uh, this uh, these prophecies? And by fulfilling, um, it does not mean that everything has to be literally fulfilled, but mm-hmm. we have to take a deeper look and to see that if someone has made a claim, then we must look at the claim, right? So first we should see that who has made such a claim. Um, and then we should see that does is his claim consistent with the teaching of the Prophet mm-hmm. and then this is where faith comes in this is where one has to search within oneself and turn to Allah the Almighty and pray that they are able to recognize the Prophet 
So this is why I, I would say that the, if someone has, you know, genuinely wants to recognize a profit, um, then they should first look at those claims which have been made. Mm-hmm. And as you know, there are many people who have claimed to be the prophet, but then we should also see that how many of those people uh, have been blessed and have been supported by Allah the Almighty in, the, in their mission, mm-hmm. and whose followers uh, continue to, to, to flourish and, and to increase, and whose communities continue to stand, and, and who have the features and the hallmarks of the divine community. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, how one must search. Um, mm. And of course, we as the Ahmadi community people, uh, Muslim community, invite others to to uh, join us on this, this this journey and this search, and to you know look and study for themselves. Um, of course, this is the the purpose of our of our mission of our mm. of our work that we do. And um, most importantly, one if you believe firstly that there is a God, and you believe that that God He sends prophets, then. Uh, uh, the best thing to do is to turn to that God and to ask Him to guide you. And mm-hmm. and, and many people have been guided through this, uh, through uh, this searching, through uh, searching for for this person. And and within the Ahmadiyya community, you'll find um, numerous examples of people who have been guided to uh, uh, accepting the Messiah of this age through That's prayers right. and through divine guidance. Well, there you go. So you've had some wonderful interviews replayed that were recorded live in February and that's what we've been doing for the last two hours is recapping what Voice of Islam Drive Time Show presented to our listeners in February um, and they were some of the highlights of February. We In the first hour we covered some extremely serious issues in relation to immigration and uh, issues related to uh, knife crime and and its proliferation and we got some really good advice and solutions to many of the problems that we highlighted and then in the second hour we were discussing an important month for the Ahmadi Muslims when they come together to remember the prophecy concerning the birth of the promised son and its fulfilment. So there you have it. So hopefully you enjoyed that. And excuse me, if there's anything that interests you, you want to send us a message in, write to us, uh, send a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Do that and we'll be willing to respond back to you. I mean, all all this time, uh, our listeners from all over the world find our subject so interesting and so fascinating. And, And what makes it a great success is the quality of our guests, Um, and what they bring to make our shows come to life and the team behind the work that goes on, our producers and obviously um, the tech team in the back that bring it all together, which is really important. And they work 24-7 round the clock and they're there uh, ready to help bring the live shows together and in particular the Drive Time show. And I hope you really enjoyed the summary that we presented to you uh, for February and I hope uh, you found it uh, interesting and informative and by all means please do get in touch uh, with us at any time and you can call us on the show live at uh, 0208-687-7878 when we're running our live uh, shows and obviously you can tweet us at Voice of Islam uh, UK. Well thank you very much and here is the 6 o'clock news.